Welcome back. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what do we say to that? Uh, thanks. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to be back and um, talk to a lot of you guys. And uh, at least some of you are excited to be back here. So that's good. Um, I'm really eager, as I've said, to get back into our study of 1 Peter. Um, just kind of been itching to do that for most of the... Okay, something funky's happening with my iPad here. Let's turn it off and turn it back on. All right. I've been, yeah, just super excited to get back into, into our study of 1 Peter. And um, if you're new tonight, uh, if tonight's your first night, you just kind of wandered in or somebody invited you, we've been studying 1 Peter. And um, kind of the joke around here is that these expositions go kind of slow. Um, so it's, we kind of co- covered the first part of 1 Peter, as you'll see uh, in a moment. We covered that last, last semester, and this semester, uh, it's my goal to get through the rest of the book. So, I know, uh, got to go double time here. So, <laughs> covering two verses tonight, so not a very good start. Um, but anyway, let's, let's get back into it. And speaking of, of that, let's, uh, let's wade back into our exposition tonight with a little review, a little high-altitude overview of what this letter is all about. If you would go ahead and turn... To First Peter, if you're not already there, and if you were with us last year, you or last semester, I guess last year too. Um, if you were with us, then you'll remember that this letter was written to a network of churches um, across Asia Minor. So it wasn't written to one church, but to many, right? Many churches across Asia Minor, and the gospel was spreading across that empire, across the Roman Empire. It was hitting cities. Churches were being planted. Um, They were starting in the synagogue. Some of the Jews were believing. Some other Jews were being hardened. They were hardening their hearts against the gospel. And then the gospel was spreading out to the Gentiles in those cities. And Gentiles were coming in. They had come to faith in Christ, and now these, these nations were learning the ways of Israel's Messiah. And we saw in First Peter, they're leaving the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers, those idolatrous ways. They worshiped the gods of their ancestors, and they were leaving all that um, to come to faith in Jesus and to learn his ways. Peter said that in chapter 1. Uh, they had become part of God's ransomed and renewed people alongside those original Jews who had believed. And now Peter, one of the original disciples, one of the twelve, was shepherding this network of churches by this letter. But why did he write to these churches? Well, we saw last semester that his primary burden was to equip them to live faithfully in the world right in the middle of their suffering. Even though they had been restored to God, Peter said that this, the final restoration, the culmination of this, the fullness of the restoration had not happened yet. They're part of God's chosen people, yes, part of his elect, but they have not yet been brought into the land, we might say. And so they're still in exile, so to speak. Still in a land not theirs, not yet at least. And so these churches are awaiting the coming of Christ, the coming of the King. And in the meantime, they find themselves in a world that's set against their Messiah. They're in the middle of nations who are raging against the rule of Christ. And these unbelievers are making life very difficult for the Christians. So Peter wrote this letter to equip them to live faithfully in what he calls the last days. 
the days between the, the first and second comings of Christ. And very similar to, to Peter's audience, uh, we also are still in these last days. Uh, we're just 2,000 years into the last days. And also like Peter's audience, uh, things are heating up for us too. So in the course of, of church history, we've had this sort of brief reprieve um, in the West from persecution. But things are beginning to heat up for us too now in this, this post-Christian culture that we find ourselves in. And more than ever, we need this message of the letter, just like this first century church needed the message of the letter then. We need Peter to shepherd us to live faithfully as God's chosen people in the Babylon that we find ourselves in. We're still awaiting the return of the king to the earth. We're still awaiting our final restoration as well, and which means that now we're still in hostile territory. And so we need to be equipped too. We need to be equipped to live faithfully while we wait on the king and to make the most of our lives in these last days. And thankfully for us, that's what this letter is all about. That's exactly what Peter's doing in this letter. And so we saw in the opening um, of this letter, again, high altitude overview, in the opening, Peter gives us our fundamental identity as God's people in the last days. He calls us elect exiles. So you saw that on the screen a minute ago. It's kind of the theme for the letter, the theme for our series. We are God's elect exiles. We're elect. We're chosen by God to be part of his people. And as a result of being chosen by God, we're exiles here because this world is in opposition to our Savior. The world we're living in then isn't our home, and we cannot fall prey to thinking that it is. Not yet, at least. It will be one day when the full restoration comes, but that is for the age to come. In this age, in these last days, we are exiles. So we'll look at more, more on that th thought tonight. But he sets up the theme in the first two verses, and then he unpacks that, the first part of that theme in several, well, actually, he unpacks this whole theme in, in three sections in the letter, three overarching sections of the letter. And in the first section, he wants to make sure that the church understands that in spite of the fact that she's suffering, the church is fully blessed by God. Peter really unpacks what it means to be chosen by God, to be the first part of that equation, to be elect, to be chosen by God, to be part of his people. And you could call it the identity and the mission as God's elect. That's what he unfolds here. Who are we, the identity, and the mission? What are we called to do? That's part one. And throughout this section, he uses several significant images to help us see exactly who we are as God's people and what we should be about. And again, just quick review here. The first, and really the most dominant in this section, is the fact that through Christ, we are God's reborn offspring, we might say. Kind of a funny way to say it. But we're part of, we've been born into God's family. And all these have significant Old Testament background. We've been born again. We're God's offspring. We've been born into his family, and we have the family inheritance. Which, coming through Abraham, culminating in Christ, it, it, it's nothing short of the new earth. And that means, then, since we're part of God's family, we should act like we're part of God's family. That's what he talks about in this section as well. That's the mission. We should act like. We should mimic our father. We should love our spiritual siblings. Because we're part of this, this new offspring. We're God's own children. 
And so that's one image, this reborn offspring. And then another, he wants us to know that we're also part of God's rebuilt temple. Part of God's rebuilt temple. The prophets not just didn't only predict that the Messiah would multiply his offspring, um, like we saw, but they also predicted the Messiah would build a new temple with himself as the cornerstone. So we're living in fulfillment of those promises. God is raising up a new temple, and he kind of mixes metaphors. Peter mixes metaphors. He says he's raising us up not just as a temple, but also a priesthood in that temple of sorts. And that's so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices to him in obedient lives. So again, identity, temple, priesthood, purpose to offer these spiritual sacrifices. And finally, he wants us to realize that we are part of God's restored nation. Part of the restored nation. Alongside the believing Jews, we Gentiles have this beautiful privilege to enter into the restoration. To participate as co-heirs alongside the believing Jews. And participate in the restoration. And as his renewed people, we have a task. This is where we ended last semester. We have a task of proclaiming His excellencies, of just how excellent our God is to the nations around us. And that's one of the reasons why He's left us in exile. So we proclaim to the nations around us. And that was all part one. Peter wants to make sure that we understand all that Christ has obtained for us and our identity and what we're left here to do, our mission as His people. And that's all unpacking what it means to be chosen by God. All right, and that brings us to the second major section of the letter. And here, as we might expect, Peter turns his attention to how we should live in a hostile world as God's chosen people. So how to live as exiles in the world. We're going to open this up tonight. And in this section, he's unpacking that second part of his theme, living as exiles in the world. As we'll see, Peter gives us sort of this overarching instruction in the verses we're going to look at tonight. And then he'll apply that instruction to lots of different situations through chapters 2, 3, and 4. He applies it to how we live toward the government, how we interact with governing officials, how we, how we apply these things in the workplace, in the family, in the church, and even in hostile situations that we face in the culture. Peter's going to press these things down um, into specifics. And during the first half of this semester, we're going to do our best to unpack each of these categories and apply what Peter says to our own situation. I think it's going to be extremely helpful for us. And then finally, there's a third major section of this letter, part three, and we might call that looking forward to the restoration. Here, Peter starts talking about the future. He's hinted at it throughout the letter, and then in the third part of this letter, he starts looking to the future looking to the ultimate glory we're looking forward to when Christ returns, to the resurrection and the restoration we'll find there in Christ's kingdom. And his point is that a bright vision of what's to come, a bright and glorious vision of what awaits us, of the glory that awaits us in the next age, this fuels faithfulness in the here and now, in these last days, while we're exiled. So he doesn't want to end without bringing that to full fruition here in the back half of this letter, and we'll try to cover that in the back part of the semester as well. All right, so then Peter wraps it all up with, with his closing there 
um, which is super significant as well and really brings the, the letter, um, puts a bow on it. So that's the overarching structure of the letter and um, where we're headed for the rest of the semester. But tonight we're going to jump back in at the beginning of that part two there, how to live as exiles in the world. That's where we're jumping into tonight. And like I said a second ago, Peter is turning the corner in the letter here in, in chapter 2. And now that our identity and mission as God's chosen people is fixed firmly in our minds, that's part one, he starts to unpack the particulars of that mission in the midst of a culture that's set against us. What does it look like to practically mimic our Father on earth? in these last days? What does it look like to proclaim his excellencies when you're at a job and the boss hates Christianity? What does it look like to offer spiritual sacrifices of obedience in your home when you have a divided family? Peter's main goal here is to really work the angles on what it looks like to live faithfully in the midst of a hostile world that we find ourselves in. And here in our text tonight, Peter's going to, to teach us, kind of at a high altitude, how to live as exiles. He's going to give us some, some high-level guidance, we might say. Really, one overarching instruction. And it's this instruction that will kind of be our lens. It'll be how, what he applies in the various situations toward government, in the family, you know, toward in the workplace, all those things. This, this will be the, kind of the reigning instruction that he applies to the various situations I just mentioned. And these are the kinds of things that Peter wants us dialed in on as we approach the mission of living as God's restored people among the nations. So if you would, let's read the text together, and then we'll jump into it. Beloved, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, as we're going to see, Peter's really given us one command here. I know it sounds like a couple, but there's really just one, grammatically. There's one overarching instruction, and that's to abstain from the passions of our flesh by keeping our conduct honorable. You want to boil it down, simmer it all down to the bottom. That's what he's commanding. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. How? By keeping your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That's the gist. Okay? That's the essence of it. But for our purposes tonight, what I, I want to draw out what I'm calling four fundamental principles for living faithfully as exiles in the world. Okay? I'm going to break it down into kind of some four principles because Peter has a lot to say even in these, these, these two verses. A lot of implications. Okay, so we're going to look at four fundamental principles. But if we dial in on these, they, they, they'll sort of be our governing, our, our, our first principles kind of, is to apply to a bunch of different situations. Four fundamental principles for living faithfully in a world that's set against us. And one of the first things that Peter wants us to know, first principle, deep in our bones, is that we do not belong here. Oh, got it, got it out, of, out of order there. All right, sneak peek. I have to leave that one up there. All right. We don't belong here, is first principle. We are not citizens of this world, and we do not belong 
to its system. We are strangers and aliens, sojourners and exiles. We belong to Christ and his kingdom. We will reign with him on the earth when he comes to fully restore all things, but that is at his coming. Right now, according to Peter, we're sojourners and exiles. So principle number one, we don't belong here. And I'm drawing this from what he says here at the opening of this exhortation. He says, beloved, I urge you, notice, as sojourners and exiles... As Peter begins this instruction, when he's calling us to abstain from the passions of our flesh, he tells us to do it as something, or because we are something. And it's because we're sojourners and exiles. Now this is a crucial point for Peter, so we don't want to just gloss over this and kind of move on. So let's unpack these terms and really some of the implications for what, what Peter's saying here. So, all right, the terms, what do they mean? What do these terms mean? Sojourners and exiles. Well, both words here are very similar. And they refer to people who are living for a period of time in a land that's not their own. Okay? They're referring to people who live, at least for a period of time, in a land that's not their own. So, you know, in our context, we don't typically talk about a sojourner, but we, uh, we will say, we'll say refugee, but what's interesting about these two terms is that they're not the most common ones the society of the first century used of this idea of a, of a refugee or of a, of a sojourner, of an exile. At least they're not the most common ones used during this period. Instead, these two terms seem to be taken more from the Old Testament than anywhere else, which is interesting. So in Israel's history, Abraham was described with these two terms. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, Genesis 23, 4, he sojourned in a land that was not his own. So did his offspring, Israel, and then again, again in the exile. After she was disobedient and was exiled out of her land, she was described as exiling and sojourning in, in foreign lands, under foreign dominion. Now, that's its own sermon, so I won't, I won't get into all that, some of the connections. But the point here is that although the restoration of God's people has begun, like we saw in that first section of the letter, the restoration from exile, so to speak, it's begun spiritually, it's not complete. God's people are being restored to him relationally and spiritually, but we haven't been restored physically to the land. So we could describe ourselves as still in exile, still in a land not our own, even though you and I are from our respective areas. It is our, our land, you know. My family's four generations in North Carolina. It's like, it's our land, you know. But not according to Peter. It's not our land. We're still in exile. We're awaiting something different as Christians. We're still in the land, not our own, and we're still awaiting the full repentance of all of God's people. So the restoration's begun, but it's not complete. 
But as all of God's people are repenting and coming to faith in Christ through the ages, and it's going to, be, it's going to climax in the full repentance of ethnic Israel in Romans 11. And once that happens, Christ will return and he will restore us fully to the land. Meaning, kind of predominantly in Israel, but over all the earth, the new earth. And it will happen first in the millennial kingdom. And that's described in Revelation 20. And then finally and fully in the new earth, described in Revelation 21 and 22. But much, much more on that later. So again, shameless plug for our Sunday night series. Doing a whole series on that um, on Sunday nights in the main service. But for now, the point I'm trying to make is that even though the restoration has begun spiritually, we're being restored to God as God's people, it's not complete. We're still sojourners in a very real sense. We're still exiles on earth. This old earth and the system that governs it is not our home. We don't belong here, and that is what Peter is driving home, and we've got to get this. For us, if we're going to live faithfully now in these last days, it starts here. We're chosen, we're loved by God, 100%. But we're still sojourners. But it's so tempting to think we do belong here. That this place really is our true home. Like we're tempted to get cozy. We're tempted to try to build our own little empires. We're afraid to take risks for Christ because we think this life is ultimate. We're unwilling at times to make sacrifices because we mistakenly think that this life is all there is, that this is our home. And the heaven's just up there in the clouds somewhere. We're going to be like a Thomas Kincaid painting one day. That's not the reality. There's a kingdom coming, a very literal, physical kingdom coming, of which you and I are going to reign. But when we forget that, we're tempted to try to squeeze every temporal pleasure out of this place because we think we belong here. We're like Lot in Sodom. We're afraid to get out of there. We're afraid to leave it behind. Or, sometimes we're surprised when bad things happen to us, as if they're not supposed to happen to us. Right? Like we're caught off guard when we're made fun of at the job for being a Christian. I mean, nobody likes that. Ah, we're surprised. Ah, like something's wrong. Or when your kind of lukewarm friends make fun of you on campus. They exclude you. Ah, something's wrong. We get our feelings hurt when coworkers leave us out of a group chat. What's underneath that? What's underneath that is the expectation that I am supposed to be accepted here. This world is my home. And then an offshoot of this, too, is a subtle expectation that I'm supposed to Christianize the culture. Right? It's supposed to be a world changer. As though that's part of the mission of the church. Every square inch is Christ's. Therefore, we must redeem it and restore it, including all its institutions, they say. But if that were the case, I'm not sure that Peter would use the image he does here. Can we seek the welfare of this place, of the cities that we're in? Of course we can. We ought to. Should we be involved in political systems and things like that? Yeah. But our king is coming to reign. And our visible reign 
will be with him in the future. Right now, we're simply sojourners in a land that doesn't belong to us. That's the metaphor. We're not kings now, according to Peter. Exile. And what this means is that life is not supposed to be easy. When it's hard and challenging, that's normal. Tracking with me? Like, it's an expectation shift, right? Hard is normal. Challenges are normal. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy this life or this world or even have leisure in the world that we live. Of course God weaves that into our everyday experiences. He's a good God. He gives blessings on the righteous and the unrighteous. Even while we're in exile, of course we can, we can enjoy aspects of this creation. But what it does mean is that my expectations for this life need to be aligned with the expectation of a sojourner, the expectation of an exile. And so when that moment happens, when your life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would 15 years from now, or whether it's physical sickness, or chronic pain, or social marginalization, or the death of a loved one, or job losses, or being excluded from certain opportunities, or even imprisonment, as hard as it is, may we say, it's okay. My day is coming in the restoration when the king returns and when he raises me from the dead and when he sets me over the nations. That's what I'm living for. That's how Peter can get crucified upside down. Now, with that said, you might be tempted to hear me saying that our role in the world is a passive role. Right? Just a sojourner, just an exile. Just waiting on Jesus. Well, what Peter envisioned here is is anything but passive. Okay? There is a war to wage, a fight to be had, and it's not waging cultural battles or trying to set up our own kingdoms on earth. There is an enemy to fight, but Peter frames it up as an enemy within. If we want to live faithfully in the world, not only do we need to know that we don't belong here, but that we also must fight our dangerous desires. Principle number two. We must fight our dangerous desires, Peter says. Drawing this from verse 11 as well. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so here, it's precisely because we don't belong to the world, it's precisely because we don't belong here that we're called on to fight these wayward desires that are within us. These desires that are more aligned with the world and its system versus Christ and his kingdom. Peter's saying there's a fight to be had, and it's a fight for our souls. So let's look a little more carefully at what he's commanding us here. First thing I want you to notice is notice that he's telling us to abstain from something in particular. Okay? What is that? What's he telling us to abstain from? He says, from the what? From the passions of the flesh. What's he talking about? Well, Peter's talking about the desires for evil that we still sometimes have. Baseline. Desires for evil that we still sometimes have. Those sinful cravings that we all still experience. Even the most mature of us in the church. 
That's the desires of the flesh. They come from the flesh. That's the of the flesh part. The flesh is another way of talking about our old nature, to use Paul's term. It's not who we are anymore in Christ. It's not our identity. And yet, the flesh is still very influential. It still seeks to exert its influence over your life. I mean, it's deceived, it's all messed up, you can't be trusted, all those things. But it, it, it churns up all kinds of desires, all kinds of cravings for bad things. That's, a, the, those are, those are, that's, what the, that's what Peter's getting at here when he's talking about these desires of the flesh. So you might know porn or masturbation is wrong, but you crave it. That's a desire coming from the flesh. You might know you should trust God, but you crave to control everything and everyone in your environment. That's a desire of the flesh. You might know that you should be patient, but you seethe in anger over something your roommate did to you. That's a desire of the flesh. And that is what we have to fight or abstain from, Peter says, as sojourners. That's where our energies should be focused, is internal. To abstain, to say no to those evil desires, and especially when we're mistreated in a world that's set against Christ. We want to retaliate, fleshly desire. We want to demand our rights, fleshly desire. We want to get even, fleshly desire. We want to take vengeance, fleshly desire. We want to withhold forgiveness, fleshly desire. But Peter is calling on us here to abstain, to say no, to actively fight these kinds of things. But why? Why do we need to abstain from it? Peter's answer might surprise us. Because these desires are the most dangerous thing we face. They wage war against your soul, he says. They're the most dangerous thing. Now that's pretty wild for Peter to say that in the context of 1 Peter. Not the pagan Roman state as dangerous as they were, crucifying Christians, beating them to lions, not even Satan, who will later on be described as prowling around like a roaring lion trying to devour someone. I've, ne- I've never like encountered a starving lion, you know, as I'm kind of walking down the street. But I can imagine that that's pretty terrifying. But Peter doesn't list those things, the state, Satan, as our primary enemy here. They are our enemies at times. But notice how, notice what Peter says, it's the desires of the flesh. The enemy is one that is within. Notice how Peter goes on to describe these desires. They wage war against your soul. His point is that nothing can derail you from mission faster than when you're taking fire from fleshly desire. The imagery is graphic, Right? The fleshly desire has just got you pinned down in a foxhole, and it is just, you know, and you are, you are just taking fire. Your soul is bleeding out because of the shrapnel of a desire that's got a hold in your life. So what does that mean, okay? Just think about this for a second. 
when we excuse our fleshly desires and the evil behavior that follows from those desires, when we're not withstanding those desires, abstaining from them, or humbly, humbly confessing them, seeking to battle these desires, our, our, our souls, those souls that have been renewed and cleansed by Christ, those souls are taking rounds of enemy fire. You're not even in the foxhole. You're standing in a wide open field with your gun down, just, just, bam, 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 when you are not withstanding when you're letting anxiety over your future have free reign in your life, or self-pity because you're not dating, or jealousy because your roommate is dating, when those desires are pouring into your life without any opposition from you, without any confession, without any repentance, imagine your soul getting lit up with rounds of ammo. What Peter says happening. That's the picture here. That's the most dangerous thing we, we face. That's the worst thing for you. So what Peter's trying to do with this language is to alert us to the danger. Satan can't do anything to us without these desires. You ever think about that? He pounces on us, like we heard on Sunday night, when these desires have taken root. We need to take these things seriously and devote some significant effort to withstanding them. So if your soul's getting lit up tonight with a fleshly desire and you don't know how to attack it, talk to somebody about that. That's why we're here, right? Like, we all love coming to balance, but like, if you're not growing, then we might as well like, not be here, right? Humble yourself. We're all there. We've all got them. Talk to somebody. Seek help. That's why the church is here. Every one of us has scars from the battle some of us even have open wounds as we're limping in here tonight. Because we're trying to do battle, right? Getting shot up. But we will help you look at the issue from Scripture and show you how Christ wants to help you fight these things. Nurse the wounds, so to speak. But also, before we leave this point, I just want to say one more thing. It's kind of a backdoor encouragement here uh, for what Peter's saying. The very fact that Peter says we should abstain from these desires, what does that mean? Or that we can and that we have them, right? That we should expect to have them in the Christian life. That's a backdoor encouragement, right? Even the most mature among us will have these desires. Even Peter himself. Peter feared man. Had to be rebuked by Paul. Listen, if you, if you see some powerful fleshly desire in your life, don't let Satan twist that to overly discourage you. I mean, is it discouraging? Yeah. But don't let him twist that and overly discourage you in despondency. You're not fully restored yet. That means you're going to still struggle. The restoration's coming when you're resurrected from the dead. But as you fight, fight in hope. Okay? The battle's won. Christ has secured your soul. So no matter how many bullets you take, <laughs> they're not gonna, it's not going to overwhelm you. Enemy fire is not going to overwhelm you. He's got you. Christ has saved you. He's cleansed your soul, that soul that's being warred against, and he's here to help you in the battle. He's in that foxhole with you, and he won't allow you to be ultimately overtaken in the war against your fleshly desires. He's given you his word, 
He's given you his church. He's given you, most of all, his spirit to help you overcome the battle. So expect the internal battle. Okay? Expect it. And don't be overly discouraged when you see those fleshly desires rise up in your own heart yet again for the umpteenth time. Okay? Just fight back. So think about this. Walking away from a sermon like this, think about one area of fleshly desire in your life. Okay? What area of the flesh do you need to do battle on? Again, I'm not saying you might have ten. Okay, pick the worst one, right? And like let's let's start getting a strategy together for how to how to attack that thing. If you haven't already, identify one and get to work on it. If you need help, for sure we're we're here for that. Now, there's a lot more we could say, but we gotta keep moving. I love where Peter goes next. All right? It's our third principle. Not only are we abstaining from these fleshly desires, fighting them, we're resisting something negative, he says, but we're also to be about something positive. Peter tells us that as sojourners living in the world, we have to learn to live visibly noble lives. It's principle number three. We need to be living visibly noble lives, or at least learning to live these kinds of lives. That's the idea, what he says next. So he says, keep, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And really, this is part of the solution to actually abstaining from the desires of the flesh. Principle number two. So you're saying, how do I abstain from the desires of the flesh? Well, you do it by keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The ESV translates that as like another command. That's good. You get, kind of get the idea, but it's actually a participle. It's a dependent verb, and it modifies what just came before it. So he says, I urge you to do something, to abstain from these things. How? By keeping your desire, keeping your lifestyle honorable. Meaning, one of the primary ways we resist those evil desires is by getting after something positive. So often we try just to like not do the bad thing, right? I'm not supposed to do that but we don't realize we've got to pursue something of value in its place. Something that Christ wants us to do, that we can pursue in faith. And the point here is there's a fruitful and glorious life, a life of noble responsibility, a life of Christ's own joy to get after. And it's a kind of life that the fleshly desires keep us from. And that's what Peter wants us focusing in on, this positive pursuit. So let's unpack what he says here. Literally, he's telling us that we need um, to lead a morally excellent life. The idea is that our lives, our conduct, our behavior should be admirable. The way we should live should be praiseworthy, exemplary, and inspiring. Right? It should even have a beautiful element to it. That's what he's, when he's talking about honorable, living honorable lives, that's the idea of this word. That's the life of Christ. And so in my heading, I'm calling it a noble life, and I love that language. It's the kind of life that resembles our king, a life that fits the future kings and queens of the new creation. It's a life that doesn't objectify and take advantage of women by gawking at them lustfully on the Internet. But instead, it's a life that nobly serves and protects women, even at great cost to the young men. That's a life of Christ-like nobility that our young men are called to. It's a life that doesn't cower in the corner in self-pity and fear. 
but learns to trust Christ and courageously be proactive in relationships. Even if you might get hurt, proactive in conversations to find and meet the needs of others. We could go on and on, and we will in weeks to come. But for now, Peter's point here is that there's a life of noble fruit to be had, a war to be won, and spoils to be shared, if we want to keep our metaphor. There's real victory, meaningful fruit, generational fruit that is available to you, and it all comes from pursuing this morally noble life. And so if we get back to that area of struggle you identified earlier, that fleshly desire that you decided to go to war against, also ask the corollary question, right? What good fruit could you cultivate in its place? You've got the thing you're doing battle against. What good fruit could you cultivate in its place? If you're anxious, how could you tangibly act in courage as you trust Jesus? Spell it out. If you're selfishly lusting, how could you act selflessly? to bless and benefit someone else. That's the noble life, the commendable life. Now, before we leave this third principle, I want to explain one more little word I've included in the heading. And I said this kind of noble life is lived visibly. See that? Why did I say that? Well, notice a little phrase that Peter includes here. He describes our conduct as being among the Gentiles. You see that? Among the Gentiles, verse 12. And it's our conduct in a, in a particular sphere, is what he's talking about. Among the, the nations. Now, this is super interesting for Peter to say it like this. Why is that? Because Peter is a Jewish Christian, and he's writing to Gentile Christians. But remember, according to Peter, these Gentiles, including us, have been swept up into the restoration of the nation. Right? We get to participate in this, in God's nation. So in Peter's mind, the Gentiles, in quotes, are the unbelievers. They're not the Christians. Even if they're actually Gentile in ethnicity, right? They're not. We've been swept up into the believing nation, the restored nation. And so the Gentiles that are around us are the unbelieving nations around the church, the unconverted. And so he's continuing that Old Testament metaphor here, some of those categories that we find from the Old Testament. And his point here is that our good behavior is necessarily on display among and in the midst of unbelievers. There's a major implication here that we need to point out. According to Peter, the fact that we are sojourners does not mean we are isolationists. You tracking with me? We don't just pull out of the culture altogether, refusing to engage it. Even if it's hostile or hard. It's quite the opposite, Peter says. Our good behavior should be visibly on display among the Gentiles, meaning we're, we are also among them. We're living among them. We work among them. We do our leisure among them. We play among them. We recreate among them. We live among them in their neighborhoods, and sometimes they, they, they live among us in our own houses, right? So Peter holds two concepts in tension here, and they belong together because Christ modeled them together. Christ went where the sinners were, right? He didn't avoid them. And yet, he maintained a morally excellent life. He didn't cave to their lifestyle. Sometimes we want to avoid the sinner 
or avoid sinners altogether so that we play it safe, we stay comfortable with our crowds, or we stay untainted by the, by the unbelievers. Or, on the other hand, we embrace the culture and we're, we're influenced by them in an attempt to win them, right? We think we've got to lower our standards, be like them, don't have to become like the Gentiles to win the Gentiles. You know, didn't Paul say that? But both of those are the wrong approach. One's isolationist, one's kind of like full-on, like let's be like the culture. Here, Peter calls us to focus on living moral lives, full of faith, radiating Christ's character, and to do it right in and among the unbelievers. Mixing it up. But why? Why does the Lord want us to mix it up, bringing light to bear in dark environments? Isn't that risky? Might we get mocked and slandered? Well, yeah. But guess what? This is part of God's means to bring about conversions. That's where Peter ends this instruction, and that's really the, where this whole thing is headed, with one giant motive here at the end. We do it all. We're fighting the flesh. We're seeking to live these noble lives with the goal that people would come to Christ and ultimately glorify God when Christ returns. So that's what's on Peter's heart. Look in verse 12. It says, keep your, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, here's the purpose, for this reason, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's what's on Peter's heart. And we could frame it up as a principle to stay consistent in our outline. We could say it like this. Our fourth fundamental to living faithfully in the world is that we've got to endure for the conversion of others. Okay, endure. So keep resisting the flesh. Keep living honorably among the Gentiles. Keep enduring their hostilities when they slander you. Endure for the conversion of others. Now, I know that this text sometimes raises questions when you read it, this part of the verse. I know it has for me in the past, and it did again uh, this go-around as I was trying to think my way carefully through this. It seems pretty straightforward at first, you know, as you're kind of reading it. Peter's calling us to live these exemplary lives so that as unbelievers are accusing us of things over time, They see the moral virtue of our lives and they change their opinion. They convert, which is implied. Uh, It's not directly stated there. And then as as a result, they glorify God, meaning they praise Him for His mercy. They praise Him for His goodness. They praise Him for His wisdom. So far, so good, until you come to that last little phrase. Right? On the day of visitation. You're like, what? What are you talking about? What's he getting at here when he talks about this day of visitation? Well, there's some, some options, I guess you could say, on, on this phrase. One, basically, kind of continues the line of thought, like I just said. And they say, well, then the day of visitation has to be when God visits individual believers in conversion through the Holy Spirit. This visitation moment where God comes to the believer, comes to the unbeliever, and converts him. Day of visitation. Not likely. Not a likely view, because that's probably not what this phrase means. All right, so what does it mean? Much more likely is this phrase refers to when God visits 
us at the return of Christ. It's the day of visitation. Now, why would I, why would I say that? Well, because this, this day of visitation is a technical phrase from the Old Testament. And prophets use it, but it's, it's particularly kind of evocative of the Exodus. That day when God visited his people to save them from Egypt and then judge his enemies. Kind of bring them out of their, of their exile in a foreign land into, you know, ultimately the land of Canaan. And it's this sort of, this hope that really permeates First Peter, this, this return of Christ, this day of Christ, this, this, in this case, day of visitation when Christ visits us in, in his return. And this is strengthened when you understand that the second exodus, there's a thing that like they, the New Testament authors view the return of Christ as like the consummation, the end of the second exodus. When he comes to gather his people from the corners of the earth and then plant us in his land forever. And that's the best option for the meaning of this phrase, is this referring to the return of Christ. So some have thought then, that since the timing of their glorifying God is at the return of Christ, that this isn't a reference to their conversion at all, right? Because when they're going to glorify God is on the day of visitation. And they're glorifying God in the sense that they're, they're, the, the saints are being vindicated, and they're having to acknowledge that on that day. And so God's getting glory from the condemnation of the unbeliever when God makes all things right. That's much more compelling than the first, the first view I talked about, but I, I still think that one falls short. Because when you look in 1 Peter, glorifying God is always something positive for the person that's doing it. Right? They're, they're doing it like from, a, from, a, from a heart of faith. Glorifying God's always positive. And then second, the overall hope of this section, the whole section, from middle of chapter 2 all the way down through the middle of chapter 4, the overall hope of this section is that people come to faith in Jesus through the good works, by seeing, in particular, seeing the good works of unbelievers. So, I'll give you an example of that. Look down in chapter 3. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, talking about unbelievers, unbelieving husbands, even if unbelieving husbands don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Notice, when they see, same verb, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So when it says up here in our verse, in chapter 2, verse 12, that they may see your good deeds, it's the same verb that's being used there as it is of these unbelieving husbands, when they see the deeds of their wives. And in both contexts, those are positive, I think. And so the best option, most satisfying is this, to understand it this way. The goal of living honorably is so that when unbelievers at first speak against us and accuse us of evil, they'll be confronted with counter data. Right? Our good works, our beautiful lives that we live. And as a result, then, they'll convert, which is implied, okay? And so when Christ returns, they will be among those who bring him glory and praise on that final day. Because of our lives, because of our modeling for them of what kingdom life looked like, and the Lord used that to draw them and convert them 
now. They'll glorify God then. I think that's the best way to understand, understand the data here. And so my point, we're, we're tied up here. I know we're out of time, but the point here, where, where Peter is headed in this whole thing, is to help us see that there's a lot at stake on us battling our own sinful desires. There's a lot at stake in learning to live noble lives. Because the unbelievers are not going to, they're going to slander you, okay? That's like a given. But what needs to happen is they need to be confronted with the data of your life, the overall pattern of your life, and compelled by the beauty of it compelled by the power that they see that they can't even begin to experience. Let me just give you a, a kind of great in here, you know, with, when it comes to evangelism. The best the world can do is to cope. Right? Medicate its issues. Cope with its issues. The church has the power of God through the truth and the Holy Spirit for transformation. For like real change. It's lasting, tangible, evident, and glorious. The world doesn't have that. The world just copes, puts band-aids on things, limps along, makes excuses, and lives in perpetual slavery to these, to these things. We have real answers, and what those answers do is they promote the reality of the gospel. Doesn't mean that everybody will be converted. We'll see in these cases, sometimes all we're doing is silencing the ignorance of foolish people. That's <laughs> what Peter says by our lives, right? When they slander us. But the point is our godly lives demonstrate the life-transforming power of the king. And often, God is drawing people through our lives. He just says it about those women that we just read, without a word. That's powerful. Peter's not one to say that the gospel doesn't need to be shared. Peter would definitely say that. Um, we'll see that. He actually says that in his letter. But the point is, don't, don't mis-evaluate, don't misunderstand the power of your Christian life and just the daily grind at work, in the family, at home, and all these various situations that he's going to spell out when we submit to government, when you submit to your boss, when you endure unjust suffering with grace, all of that is designed by Christ to be a powerful demonstration of, of, of the reality of the gospel and to ultimately include others in that restoration now so that they, amen, that's incentivizing. Father, we are grateful for how your word equips us to live faithfully while we're here. We know it's such a challenge. And yet... Uh, we follow Christ. We follow him in hope. We know that our Savior will not uh, lead us into, into temptation, but will deliver us from evil. And so we are thankful to be following Christ the King, who is resurrected, enthroned, and is coming to earth to reign. Lord, may we conquer like he did. Uh, keep us faithful to the end, as, it, as you said, so that we will rise in triumph one day in the new earth, reigning over the nations to your glory. And we pray now that in the meantime, you would help us to stay faithful, um, to remember that this world's not our home, and to, to fight with the power of your spirit, to live noble lives for the sake of those around us, that they would come to taste and see 
But we pray for that in Lynchburg, uh, that you would do that in us, in our workplaces, at liberty, through the testimony of this group.